Welcome to A Moment of Change, brought to you by On Purpose London. 2020 has brought significant political, social and economic disruption to many areas of society. It is a moment of change that will lead to fundamental shifts in the world going forward, for better and for worse. In this short podcast series, we will speak with leaders working in various areas within the social and environmental impact sectors to find out what impact 2020 has had on them and on their challenges, both professionally and personally. On Purpose is a non-profit organisation and community that believes in putting purpose before profits as a way to create an economy that works for all. Associates from the On Purpose programme are asking the questions in each episode of A Moment of Change. Over to them. Welcome everybody to today's podcast. Uh, we're going to be discussing the social determinants of health with me, Caleb Wheeler-Robinson, my co-host, Lydia Levy, uh, and we are delighted to be joined by the Reverend Charles Kwaku Odoi. Charles is the Chief Officer of the Caribbean and African Health Network, or CAN. He has experience in strategy, governance, and policy from a number of roles in the voluntary and public sectors at local and at national level. He's a member of the Greater Manchester Voluntary Community and Social Enterprise Leadership Group, and is a nominated governor at Manchester Foundation Trust. So normally we'd love to be able to record this podcast in person, but unfortunately, due to the nature of the times, um, we are recording it over Zoom. So please do forgive any audio quality issues. Welcome, Charles. Lovely to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Caleb and Lydia. It's great to have you here. So we're going to be talking about the social determinants of health today. Um, just so everyone listening to the podcast is on the same page, could you just give a quick definition of what the social determinants are? So the social determinants of health are the you know, economic and social conditions that could influence one's or a group's health and well-being. So it includes things like, you know, housing, people's jobs and their income status and various other things that really impact on one's health and well-being. Thank you very much. That's great. There is some really interesting facts that I've come across while I've been researching for this podcast. For example, did you know, and this is just for our listeners, maternal death rates are actually five times higher for black women than white women in the UK, which is pretty significant. And that uh, black African, black Caribbean and Asian people are more likely to access mental health care through criminal justice agencies than via primary care. So I think we can see that that really impacts particular, particular communities here. So the structure of today's podcast is uh, we're asking experts in their field to talk through uh, some moments of change things that have kind of affected them throughout their life and, and how they've ended up uh, where they are today. Charles, uh, it'd be great if um, if you we could start with your, your kind of first moment of change about, um, you mentioned something uh, in, in, as, we were, as we were preparing for this, about attending a, a workshop on HIV and uh, your role as a, a, as a reverend as well. Thanks, Caleb. So, so one of the, you know, very significant moments of change, it was back in 2011, so I had a call from someone in London and I, I wondered how they came across my number, but obviously because I was involved in the interfaith network for Manchester at that time, they had found me on Google. And, and this lady asked if I will come along to an engagement session exploring the subject of HIV and how that affects black people. So I just thought, okay, I knew about HIV back in Africa before I traveled over in, in 2000. You know, I want to go along you know, respectfully, because I had been asked, I would go along and, and listen in, you know, to the presentation and, you know, explore what was happening. 
So I went along and, and this person was a Christian as well. And then she was working with, you know, Tara Ziggins Trust. So she did a presentation and what struck me was the fact that, you know, HIV prevalence was in the Y gay community or men having sex with men or MSM as we refer to that and the black African community and, and, and the challenge she threw to us as community and, you know, church leaders was the fact that, you know, there hasn't been that much engagement with the black African community compared to the other community with high prevalence. And all she was asking for was were opportunities to engage with church leaders and other community leaders. And I just thought, great, you know, I knew about HIV back in Africa and it being an epidemic and killing people. In the UK, all I'm being asked to contribute to this whole thing that, that could bring about it, you know, uh, better outcomes was, was opening the doors that I had to church leaders, you know, and, and I felt that was a real, you know, opportunity to, to, to really help with the work. So, you know, I latched onto it and, you know, we had a series of engagements and over the years, it's been one of the things I've been really passionate about. And through the engagement with the church leaders, we're able to develop a biblical guide, you know, to engage in when it comes to HIV. We then went on from there to organize HIV testing in churches on Sundays as part of the church services. And, and you know, we always make sure we got the, the pastor to be tested first at the end of the service. And then, you know, that gave a real confidence to other church members to join the queue and, and go for the test in the private space. So this was a community testing, you know, that did happen. And it was a real groundbreaking, you know, opportunity for us because we had done that proud engagement from a biblical perspective. I, I'm really interested to hear that, that uh, you did actual HIV testing in the in the churches uh, on Sundays. I think that's that's great. One of the uh, challenges I think is is actually you know getting people tested. Uh, what what do you think the main kind of barriers were to black people within these uh, communities not going and getting tested for HIV? I think I think there was a big thing around ignorance, but also the whole stigma and discrimination. So when I got together with the church leaders, I, I did ask if we could develop this guide on four things. So we looked at treatment we look at testing we look at stigma and discrimination and then precautionary behavior and we explore those topics from a biblical perspective and then i i had to bring in the experts who then shared some of the data and and i think what was more encouraging even back then was the fact that hiv treatment is free irrespective of your immigration status irrespective of the fact that you you didn't have a gp you know, so that was a big light bulb moment because this is something that people can't afford back in Africa and it's free over here. And we know there are lots of services that, you know, migrants can't access because they don't have recourse to public funds or because their immigration status hasn't been regularized. And, and for us to be told that the treatment is free, it was really encouraging. So then it meant that the church leaders had to go back, reflect on it. And that was when they, you know, were now willing to open their doors for us to go in and be part of their services and then have the testing at the end of the service. And yes, you know, there were scriptures we used from the Bible about, the, you know, the fact that God was interested in people's well-being. 
and not just the spiritual one, but the physical well-being as well. And I think that quite resonated. But because we keep saying the level of trust congregants have for their ministers cannot be overstated. So when people see their own church leader going to the private space that we created in those churches to get the fingerprint, then it meant a lot. And then since then, you know, I've been part of HIV testing week, you know, doing photo shoots and, you know, being on billboards and buses, you know, up and down the country in my clerical saying all you need is a fingerprint. Can I ask a question, Charles? Did you have any examples in the UK of this sort of healthcare being delivered through churches that you could use when you were setting this up? Or was this a new thing that hadn't been done before, particularly around HIV? Well, uh, you know, we, we had a series of engagement sessions with other church leaders up and down the country, which Terrorism Against Trust facilitated. But at that time, it, it wasn't, I think there were isolated examples, but it hadn't been, been pulled into the mainstream. And and also what I knew was that, and I did make sure we could not exploit it, but really maximize the opportunity, was the fact that we had lots of medical people in the churches, so doctors and nurses. So I just thought, what if we could get some of them to chip in the word? And there were a few, you know, congregations who every night in my organized, you know, community fund day. And as part of that, we'll have basic BMI check. So we just thought, well, if that is happening, why don't we do the dedicated focus one? Just because of the sensitivity of the subject. So we were able to do that. It did work. And then we had a couple of rollouts. I think it's it's really interesting that you mentioned about the trust in your uh, in the in the pastors and churches. Could you speak a bit about a bit more about about your experience of Black and African communities trust in NHS services, for example, in local council services? Thanks, Caleb. I, I think that's a really big issue. So, you know, we, we we have a situation where because as a society and as a country, there have been various unpleasant experiences of people, then it's reflected in you know, how low the level of trust is when it comes for mainstream services, you know. So I know, yes, we'll come to COVID later, but 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 from our own research, 74% of people were requesting for black-led services. And, and that goes to tell you how deep the lack of trust is. So, you know, from various research will buttress what I'm saying. There was one from the Centre of Aging at the University of Manchester that conducted an interview with older Bain people. And some of them were talking about the fact that the racism or racist incidents they experienced decades ago have had so much profound impact on them that even in their old age, although things have changed in certain aspects and certain places, they haven't not been able to move on. And, you know, all this could be corroborated with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and what we've seen this year. So whether it's because of people's names, people's mannerisms, you know, how people express themselves or the language barriers, it's meant that there is a section of our population that feel they're not welcomed into mainstream services. And, And those are the things we keep engaging and having conversations about so that those reasonable adjustments could be made. So if someone walks into a GP surgery, for example, in an area with a a significant BAME population and all they can see in the imagery 
you know, it's nobody from their community, then there's a real issue there. And I, I think, I think we, we all hoping that the lessons we've learned following Black Lives Matter, following the disproportionate impact of COVID, we, we're hoping that one of the big lessons will be our NHS will get better at harnessing the potential of the thousands of people from minority ethnic background that work day in, day out in our amazing and world-class National Health Service. Excellent. That's great. I would like to pick up on, on something you said there. Like you, you mentioned that one experience can last uh, for decades. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a parallel there between kind of the study of, of social determinants of health as well as what you said. Um, and the, I, I think the idea is, and there's quite good evidence to back up, you know, what we experience in our early childhood um, has a huge impact on kind of our health outcomes uh, as, as life goes on. I mean, one, one example is when someone experiences violence as a, as a child, they are more likely to be in a, in a violent, when they're older, they're more likely to be in a violent household quite often being the perpetrators of violence. So I think there's an, an interesting parallel to, to, to draw between those two things. I think it might, it might be good to kind of move on to, uh, to your next moment of change. So would you like to kind of talk a bit about the setting up Khan, about what Khan is, and, and kind of what made you, made you, made you realise a bit more about the social determinants? Right, so, so the Caribbean African Health Network was set up on the back of our chair, Faye Bruce's PhD, that was looking at you know, cardiovascular disease within the Caribbean African community and why the black community tend to have poorer health outcomes. And during the community consultation, people were asking what she was going to do with the data and she did promise to do something of it. But the more focus groups she held, you know, the louder the call for something to happen because people had been consulted in the past. People have had pretty awful experiences and nothing has, has happened on the back of that. So I went to, along to one of these engagement sessions and Faye presented the data across different health indicators. So cardiovascular, you know, mental health and other health conditions. And it did take my mind back to 2011 when the data was presented about HIV and the prevalence and, you know, what needed to happen in order to reduce the transmission and you know increase uptake in services and stuff like that and and I just thought great this is fantastic this is something I can jump on and and, and be a part of that but also you you made a really good point about you know people's experiences so what what we have is a situation where we know there are high exclusions of being children in school so that experience in school where people are treated in a way that they feel discriminated against, it then affects how people then engage with health or the way people feel, you know, not many people are getting on the housing ladder, you know, when it comes to decent jobs, then it impacts on how they engage with other services. We've known in the past from different studies because some of our names cannot be pronounced, people don't get shortlisted. You know, so all these things, so whether it's around access to job, whether it's education, whether it's about people being able to progress in their careers, you, you know, it, it's quite astounding. You look at the rates, the disciplinary rates, even for medical doctors, for consultants, you know, it's high across different socioeconomic factors. 
you know, a, a whole raft of issues that impacts on the community. And, and that is why sometimes our people will assess services late or because of the low level of trust will think, I don't matter, I don't count. And we've seen this, whether in democratic participation, you know, so we have to know, we have to cajole people to vote before they vote because, the, the, you know, people have thought, oh, my vote doesn't matter. I don't even see anyone from my community on the list. So, yes, you, you know, you're really right. You know, based on some of those feedback we had from the consultation, we just thought it's about time we do something. And I think the other important thing to mention as well, you know, talking about those, you know, moments of change was the fact that in Greater Manchester, we, we thought devolution is here. So in Greater Manchester, lots of conversations with the previous story government and, and, and because of, you know, the chancellor then, we were able to, you know, obtain some level of devolution and, you know, having our own mayor. And, and we thought at the time these conversations were happening in 2017 is the fact that devolution is here. So if we could come together and form something, then it gives us a real opportunity. We have a vehicle that we can use to engage, that we can use to begin to influence policy in order to bring about the change we wanted to see. And, and that you know, effectively will mean that our community you know, is getting a decent slice of the resource and, and that which we need in order to begin to address some of the decades of neglect. That's moving to hear. Um, thank you very much. I, I, I know that the father of the social determinants of health, Michael Marmot, uh, wrote a report in 2010 and actually um, released a, a recent update to that report. Uh, and since, since 2010, there have been a number of uh, kind of Marmot cities, so-called, which are you know, taking these, this idea that health can be determined by the circumstances in which you grow up. And they uh, kind of apply that to every every aspect of the local authorities' engagement with communities. I know Greater Manchester Combined Authority is uh, one of those Marmot cities. I was wondering if you could uh, comment a little bit on how you think that might have influenced policy and, and to what extent and some things that perhaps have, um, have worked well from that and maybe some things that haven't worked, worked so well. Thanks, Caleb. I, I think what Greater Manchester started to do at the start of devolution was to develop a, a, a really strong relationship with the voluntary sector as a whole. So then we ended up having an MOU that was meant to guide the way the health and Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership and their partners worked with the voluntary sector. And that has gone from good to better. And and talking about Sir Michael Marmot, so we decided because we are focusing on health inequalities, we reached out to Sir Michael's office and, and wanted to have some engagement with him, but also to share about our work because we, we did the same outreach to the Health Foundation and, and they said, oh, Sir Michael Mama will be good and stuff like that. So I must say we were really privileged as the Caribbean African Health Network just before the agreement between, you know, Greater Manchester and Sir Michael Marmot to look at Greater Manchester as a case study. He came to Manchester, delivered a lecture, and we're really privileged to host him in our office and have a conversation to him. And I remember vividly, together with Faye Bruce, our chair, posing a question to him about where race features in, in the whole wider social determinants of health. 
at that time that was invisible but you know 2020 things have moved on in less than a year which we're really grateful for and I, I, the way greater manchester is sort of work is to value his voluntary sector so it meant that because i sit on the leadership group and a couple of other colleagues we fed into you know how that should look like we've been consulted we've had meetings with sir michael's team you know we've fed into that and you know the voluntary sector is a real valued partner so we are at a stage where you know data has been looked at and you know currently there is a formation of a health inequalities commission you know following all the stuff around COVID. And I think either Sir Michael or someone from his team is a part of that. So it's great that Sir Michael's work, GM is latched onto it, recognizing the stack health inequalities. So for example, in the city of Manchester, if you were living in a less affluent area, then you know you're more likely to die 15 years before. You know, and I think the other opportunity we have, and obviously I'm a you know, nominated governor at the Manchester Foundation Trust is the merger of hospitals so that we can systematize and standardize care for people. So that it doesn't matter whether you live in an affluent part of the city or in a poorer part, life chances should be edging closer, you know, should be narrowing rather than widening. I'd like to echo that as well. I mean, a lot of what his report, as I'm sure you know, mentioned earlier on this year is that Actually, you have lower life chances if you are born outside of London in the South, if you are a woman or if you're an ethnic minority. So that is three kind of different lenses you can take to look at inequality. Caleb, just following on from what you were saying there and Charles, what you had mentioned about the fact that up to this year, race had not really been a part of the discussion around social determinants of health. Why do you think that is? I know that I read in the Marmot report that there was sometimes a lack of data. Was it that people simply weren't asking the right questions what do you think had been the blockages? I think, Lydia, you hit the nail on the head. Lack of data has been a big thing. So we all know the saying that data is king. And unfortunately, data and the way it's been collected, you know, hasn't really helped, you know, minority communities. So even in 2020, as we speak now, ethnicity is not recorded when it comes to someone's death. You know, why should that be the case? suicide which is a big thing you know we don't know you know people's ethnicity so i think there are things we can change there are structural things we can change in order to be able to reap some of the benefits that comes with having you know proper data collection and accurate data collection and then the the other thing that we haven't really tapped into is the fact that you know i'm sure with some of the public funding for research there should be more targeted research when it comes to some of the health inequalities we want to address so 2020 why should a black woman be five times more likely to die during childbirth in a developed country like ours and yes we know it's higher back in africa but that's a developing country you know and if people live here if people have made their homes here then having the same life chances having the same outcomes doesn't mean we're doing them a favor it's something that we should all enjoy and that is how we tackle those disparities and 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 inequalities so data is crucial and in going forward you know we appeal to the department of health and social care you know to local ccgs and let's begin to collect data and 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 you know i'm a great advocate for equality and and one of the things i keep saying to my colleagues you know up here in manchester is when we come up with programs that makes a difference in 
a particular community of identity, we can learn from that and then apply it in other places. So at the moment, sexuality is monitored and that is beginning to make a difference when it comes to, you know, access to services for LGBTQ brothers and sisters, you know, so equally when we start capturing ethnicity, you know, it, it will make a difference. And I think, you know, we have the census next year. It will be interesting to see whether that data will capture, I mean, you know, whether the questionnaires will capture some of this really important data. Then, you know, when we begin to have that kind of generic mainstream data capture, I think there's also a room for targeted data capturing because, you know, the generic one is great. But for example, if you have people who don't access service, although you have a questionnaire that is capturing people's ethnicity, it wouldn't capture those communities, you know, or those people who don't access service in the first place. So then how do we begin to make some reasonable adjustment? And I'm sure, you know, with all the scientific technology and the advancements we have, there could be pilot stuff we run and then extrapolate the data. That's really fascinating and some hope for next year that we'll get some valuable data in the census. Yeah, I'm privileged to be on the census advisory group. So it's something we raise and we engage in with the community engagement manager and saying, you know, yeah, you know, let's do this because we would have to wait another 10 years and we can't afford. Thanks so much, Charles. How about we, we move on to your third moment of change now? So we, we talked a little bit about um, COVID and, and what that's meant for Khan. Could you tell us a bit about that and how COVID has impacted Khan and how Khan has responded to support the Caribbean and African community in Manchester? Thank you, Philip. So, you know, I referred to the maternal mortality data earlier on. We, we decided at the beginning of the year to make our International Women's Day, which was in March, you know, exactly 9th of March, we, we made a focus on maternal mortality. And because our chair, Faye Bruce, you know, being a senior lecturer, but also she's a patient and public voice rep for NHS England, the Northwest Maternity Transformation Team, we, we decided to really delve into this. And she, she was the first person of color, you know, to be part of the team to have put themselves forward and and you know I must commend her because that also motivated me to put myself forward to be a, a patient and public voice rep for the NHS HIV clinical reference group and, and and that was a good thing but we we made a decision to make maternal mortality our focus we're really privileged to have the chief midwifery officer professor Dunkley Bent come up to Manchester to be deliver the keynote speech but what we did locally and in the spirit of the way Khan works, we had people from University of Manchester there. We had our local CCG. We had city council there. We're also privileged to have our deputy mayor for the city region, you know, also delivering an address. And we had people from the Northwest Maternity Transformation Team coming to engage with black women, you know, who had had children and their experiences and stuff like that. So after that event, I mean, obviously it was at the start when the data was beginning to come out, you know, about COVID deaths. And we, you know, we, we're really glad we went ahead with the event because right after the event, we thought, what could this mean for black women who are pregnant? What could it mean for the other issues we've been exploring? So then we decided to start putting out information about COVID and, and saying, because as of early March, it was clear that those with an underlying health condition had a risk 
you start putting out information. If you had sickle cell, if you had asthma, if you've had, you know, previous heart attack or stroke or, you know, cardiovascular related conditions, then you got to look after yourself well, because, you know, if you catch it, it's new, we learn about the virus, but because of what we know, your outcomes will be poorer. Lo and behold, weeks and months down the line, that is what the ONS data was telling us. So we started putting out information. Then people started texting us because in our community, I, I keep saying this, in our community, it was a myth initially because this was meant, it was a global you know, pandemic and, and people weren't hearing the same sort of numbers or stuff. And initially it was all just what was coming out from China. You know, people thought it didn't affect black people. And I keep saying, until Hudson Odway, who is a footballer for Chelsea, and Idris Elba, the public figure, came out saying they've had COVID and they're recovering, then people start waking up saying, oh, right. So it's not a non-black people's disease, but it's something that can impact on people. So we started churning out information. We started putting out briefing because of the relationships we had and people also sending us messages asking, is it, is it something that really affects us? So initially it was, doesn't affect black people. Then it moved to 5G and the fact that it's part of government strategy to be collecting our data and monitoring us, even to the extent that people were discouraging others from clapping for our frontline workers on a Thursday at eight o'clock because they thought that was a time where a lot more data could be collected. So we started churning out information and, you know, when people were texting us and asking individual messages, we just thought, you know, why don't we come together as a community, start information sessions on Zoom. And then the first session people shared about suicide of a young person and, you know, real anxiety in the community and stuff like that. So then we decided to set up, you know, the community's request. We set up a WhatsApp group that keeps growing. is over 100 now. But these are all leaders of organizations, some faith leaders coming together. So since the middle of April, we've been holding fortnightly, you know, community. We call it collective community response meeting, you know, with our community. And, and we bring decision makers there. We bring healthcare professionals. We bring, you know, directors of public health to that to engage, you know, with the community. Our mayor has been there on the two occasions. And, and it's so amazing how having that infrastructure really helped with the killing of George Floyd. And we were able to quieten some of the tensions in the community because, you know, that framework was in place. So we've been churning out lots of information. We've gone on knowing the data around the death rates We've set up a counseling service because once again, we have faith leaders texting, bringing, saying, you know, they're conducting three, four funerals a week. And because of obvious lockdown and the restriction, they couldn't support their families. You know, so in, in, in the black community, grieving is such that if someone is bereaved, friends will go and stay in the house for a couple of days. But with the lockdown, people couldn't do that. So the whole you know, idea and the whole manner of grieving was alien to people. You know, we ended up setting up a, a counseling service. Initially, it was meant to be a bereavement support and counseling service. And then, you know, opportunities came to do stuff around domestic violence and, and sexual violence and then, you know, other low-level mental health stuff. And, and we've seen, you know, uptake 
from that because those who deliver the service have the cultural knowledge they they have the religious understanding of where some of the people in our community are coming from you know and they're able to harness that but i think on the other hand for khan it, it was a real opportunity you know we suddenly started getting interest from media houses including lbc sky news bbc news and 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 you know other local radio stations just wanting our perspective so one of the things we did on on the back of the public health england report you know into how the the disproportionate impact we put our own position statement we obviously conducted our own research you know that highlighted the impact covid-19 has had on the mental health and well-being of children but also of adults that through that same survey people calling for blacklist services you know 61% of the 334 respondents talking about missing church and that face to face interaction with others because it was something they looked forward to so that meant you know more isolation and then we had to deal with the whole issue of digital exclusion and and elderly people who you know older people who couldn't get online and access you know some of the services we were offering Charles that's all really fascinating and it sounds like it's been a challenging but also interesting time for Khan in the last few months it would also be good to hear a a bit more about all the different organisations you work with. It sounds as if working on social determinants of health, particularly during COVID, it's so important to be connected to different organisations. Who are these organisations and what have been the main challenges and opportunities in collaborating with them? Thanks, Lydia. You're right. You know, so at the start of the pandemic, because we work across Greater Manchester and that's 10 local authorities, it means sometimes we need to have 10 conversations there was a project we were running before covid called healthy hearts and what basically we were doing was going into church settings on sundays picking up some of the learning from the hiv stuff where we would go with you know a cardiologist a pharmacist and nutritionist and a physical instructor they would do kind of 10 minutes presentation each then you know they take questions from the congregation at the end of the service we'll have two or more black nurses who offer screening and you know of 600 we did 40% plus referral rates to GP for hypertension for atrial fibrillation and and you know other related stuff so what what we've had to learn over the last 3 years plus is working with people at different levels so we really privilege once again we have a relationship with the mayor and the greater manchester combined authority because the greater manchester footprint is is their remit and then we have to work with localities you know so right from the local authorities from with their ccgs with the local care organizations we obviously have relationships with universities and you know uh, colleges as well and and housing associations because we know some of our people live in those you know uh, in in social housing so so just i mean we really privilege you know, i can't be thankful enough so we have to work with those different people and i think for khan what was also important was how we keep the community engaged how we keep them valued so what we also started doing right from the first saturday morning in may was bringing health professionals on a zoom platform to engage with the you know community on particular topics so it could be gynecology it, it, it was emergency medicine ent and all the covid related stuff but those were real opportunities where we could emphasize 
you know, and reinforce the COVID messaging. And, and, and what we, the big thing from, you know, the 30 plus sessions we have is, is how people are able to articulate, you know, the need they have and how they can, you know, be assertive and, and request for further, you know, investigation where necessary. But also I think for us as a community, going back to the issue of lack of trust, it's been really refreshing having black GPs, black consultants saying to the community, we've seen people come through with COVID from our black community. And unless you're looking after yourself, unless you're following the public health messaging and government guidance, then when you contract COVID, your outcomes could be worse. We, we, we have a, a, a strong relationship with Greater Manchester Police as well because we know the overrepresentation in the criminal justice system. And so with, with Greater Manchester Police, obviously they got a bit of backlash following the killing of George Floyd and people saying, you know, and, and I, I remember a moment where, you know, it was a real tension between myself and a section of the community because as a chief officer of a health organization, I was putting out a press release saying, because we know the poorer outcomes for our communities when we contract COVID, please do not take part in any solidarity protest. You know, the first time it happened in London on a Sunday, and people in the community were saying, no, we will. You know, I'd rather die from COVID than from police brutality or oppression. And that was a real moment where we had to then harness the relationship we have with the chief constable and his senior team, and then begin talking to the community, how can we address that? So we're talking about cultural competency training. We've had, you know, senior police officers on our calls. We have regular catch-up with the chief constable, and that is what we're doing to repair. So, you know, we've dealt with all sorts, so education, housing, you know, policing, criminal justice. Then It strikes me that one of the things that Khan is, is so important in, in doing, and I guess your role in with your different hats as well, is communicating kind of and almost translating between the black community and the not black community, essentially, and trying to encourage kind of open dialogue between the two. And I certainly know from experience uh, through my work, etc., that it is considered to be difficult to kind of communicate with the black community. And I was wondering if you had any ideas or any tips of how organizations, voluntary or social organizations might be able to do that or do that better. Yeah, you're very right, uh, Caleb. And, 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 you know, in the second report that Public Health England released about the disproportionate impact, you know, communication was a big thing that was identified. And so the phraseology we keep using is, you know, culturally and religiously appropriate services or culturally appropriate comms messaging, you know, is really important. And there have been spaces where we feed in into the recovery strategy for Greater Manchester, where we've said, Let's move away from comms to community engagement because within in comms, you can just put stuff out, you know, glossy stuff, you know, social media platforms and billboards, which is nice. It's glossy. But with community engagement, it's about finding out what matters to the community. What are the levers you could pull, you know, in order to gain the audience and, and win and attract them? But also that issue around addressing and reassuring people when people want to bring in their negative or unpleasant experiences from other spheres 
into the conversation. So what effectively we've been doing in some of the comms, uh, community engagement we've been doing or communicating government guidance, we use our black doctors to do that. You know, we get people from our community and it's a model we've established now where we always want to find champions from our community who look like us to front some of those messaging. Another session we've been having is around nutrition and you know, physical activity. We have a black physical instructor who come and do that. And then nutritionist who is that. So they can talk about the food, they can talk about, you know, so it's about how do we get people to come into a space where they're comfortable, where they drop their defenses, because they know whoever is the messenger really understands where they're coming from and they can trust the person because they understand some of those issues. So some of the stuff we've done, whether it's encouraging people to apply to, you know, our mayor's race panel that is setting up and Khan was crucial in pushing that, is to say, you know, unless we are the decision-making table, then decision will be made for us. Yes, in the past, people may have not felt listened to, but unless we keep trying, we'll never get there. So it's just some of those clever creative messaging or what can we start a conversation with where we bring in people into a space where they're comfortable so you know one of the things you know with with, with the lockdown being eased and churches being allowed to reopen we had an engagement session we got a gp who was also a pastor to be on the call alongside a public health consultant saying the same thing and, and we found time and time again, that always makes a difference. Because I, I remember learning when I was going into different churches, explaining to people that FGM, female genital mutilation, was against the law. What some of the women said was, my grandmother did it. My mother did it. I, I, I went through that. So who, you know, how did the government telling us what to do? Why do they want to change our culture? So effectively, what I'm saying is, we need to be able to get past them versus us positions on any topic, on any subject. That's fantastic. Great things to hear there, Charles. Thank you. We, we like to end the podcast with a little bit of hope because 2020 has been quite difficult for, for everyone in various different ways and to different extents. I mean, with the Black Lives Matter protests and the murder of George Floyd, we've had a global pandemic, the first one in 100 years. I think specifically from the point of view of the social determinants, there was the Marmot report earlier in the year. And we also have, you know, some potentially bumpy times ahead in terms of Will there be a second wave? Um, there's the US election. There, at the end of the year, we're supposed to be leaving the European Union. And so we'd like to ask you, with all this in mind, looking forward to the future, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is what I've seen this year. Because sometimes good things come out from adversity. I think what gives me hope following Black Lives Matter is seeing people of, of different backgrounds, different colors, different creed, all protesting in solidarity, standing with one another, saying this is unacceptable. What gives me hope is the fact that, you know, we have organizations reaching out saying, can we work with you? You know, can you let us know what we could do beyond the Black Lives Matter statements we've issued. And that's fantastic. I think what gives me hope is the fact that openly we're talking about let's work together and avoid any sense of guilt 
And, and I keep saying time and time again, yes, there will be people who perpetrate racist incidents, but what we're looking at are structures that have evolved over decades. You know, things dating back to colonialism, you know, that will take a while to change. What gives me hope is that up and down the countries, there are healthcare organizations that are beginning to make reasonable change, reasonable adjustment, you know, that are beginning to consult their workforce a bit more, that are beginning to bring in external people to add to what they already have. And there are targeted investment that we see to address some of the disproportionate impact from COVID. I think what gives me hope, all the senior leaders we have, but also our prime ministers set up a commission for all colors of, you know, the sides when it comes to our lawmakers in the houses of parliament they are all making statements they are all talking about race they are talking about you know how we can make things better so that for the millions of people who have made the united kingdom their home some of them were born here some of us you know including myself we migrated here because we were seeking greener pastures we're here to contribute And, you know, I was really pleased and I was impressed that on the first day, you know, first October, a number of government Twitter handles were talking about famous black heroes that hadn't been known. So whether it's health and social care, you know, it gives us hope. So my encouragement to to those who have had unpleasant experiences, yes, collectively with my brothers and sisters on different sides, sorry that has been your experience. But we got to learn from the past. I mean, the theme for our launch event of Black History Month for Greater Manchester, which we had our mayor and Andy Burnham and others on there, was learning from the past, navigating the present, transforming our future. And it's a collective shared thing. So even on the back of our you know, research and 74% calling for Black-led services, what we're saying is we don't want to create an apartheid system you know, let's work together. Let's make the reasonable adjustment. Let's, you know, hand in hand, shoulder by shoulder, you know, let's work to make our United Kingdom a great country to live in, where people from all backgrounds feel welcome, have the opportunity to be able to make a contribution and and call this place a home. Because my real interest is in, you know, the children I have who don't have any experience of Ghana but I have been born and bred here. They are British. I want them to grow up knowing that this is their home and you know they can thrive. So long as they're willing to put in the hard work, all these gives me hope. What an inspiring statement to finish on. Charles, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. We really, really appreciate it. And a big thank you from me as well, Charles. Uh, thanks, Caleb and Lydia, for having me. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we discuss our changing attitudes to food and the impact of the pandemic. This podcast series, A Moment of Change, is brought to you by On Purpose London, produced during the global COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 to shed light on some of the social and environmental issues that mattered most to them and that experienced turning points during this time of crisis. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review A Moment of Change on Apple Podcasts since that helps new listeners to find us. Subscribe to the podcast either there or on Spotify or on Google Play. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.